Hey, our uh, our current sermon series is in the book of Romans. You guys remember that? Um, and we're making our way through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Uh, last week, Matt Sidley helped us to understand from chapter 8, verses 14 to 16, that one of the distinguishing marks of the real children of God is that they are led by the Spirit of God. And in fact, the first half of Romans 8 is a veritable showcase of various ministries, not all of the ministries of the Spirit of God, but various ministries of the Spirit of God to us, the children of God. And I just want to take a moment to briefly review that, what Paul has been saying about the ministry of the Holy Spirit here in the first half of chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, turn it on or open it up and uh, follow with me. Uh, and see all these things that Paul's been saying about the Holy Spirit. In verse 2, Paul informed us that the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, which is to say that the Holy Spirit has been active in God's liberation of us from slavery to the law and given us life in place of death. And we've been discussing that. Verse 4 tells us that the Spirit of God enables us to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, which as we have seen is love, love for God, love for people. Verse 5 reminds us that because the Spirit of God lives in us, we can now live our lives with our minds set on doing what he desires, what pleases him. In verse 9, the Spirit lives in us, he indwells us, which, which means that he takes up permanent residence in our lives never ever to depart. In verse 10, the Spirit gives life to our spirits, which were dead because of sin. Verse 11 tells us that one day the Spirit will be the one to give life to our mortal bodies, which I take to be raising us from the dead. In verse 12, the fact of the indwelling of God's Spirit obliges us to live lives that are pleasing to Him. Verse 13 then reminds us that it's the same Spirit who provides us with a new enablement to put to death the sins of the flesh, the sins that we commit in the body, a new God-given capacity, which we didn't have before, to consciously and deliberately select obedience and reject disobedience. In verse 14, the Spirit leads us as God's children. And in verses 15 to 16, he bears witness with our spirits that the children of God is really who we really are. There's an internal confirmation, an inner communion that's initiated by the indwelling spirit, received by our spirits, our inner beings, that reassures us that this new identity that is ours in Christ is really, really real. In verses 16 to 17, which will serve as the springboard for our thinking this morning, Paul goes a step further to say that that inner witness of the Spirit that we're the children of God implies, because we are his children, that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now think about that with me. What that means is that everything, everything, everything that belongs to our Heavenly Father, everything in heaven and on earth, will one day be our inheritance, along with our brother, Jesus. 
who is also our Savior and our Lord. Notice that Paul says there that we are fellow heirs with Christ. If you allow all of that to sink in for just a moment, it'll make your head just explode. (laughs) Because it's such a massive assertion. It's such a mind-blowing promise that we can't even begin to fathom the fullness of all that it implies. And that's what the Scriptures mean, I think, when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined. But God has prepared for those who love him. Well, as is our custom, uh, will you stand with me to honor God's word? And let's read today's Scripture together. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word. You may be seated. I don't want you to miss the context of Paul's expression in this passage. In verse 17, the the conversation pivots from the present ministry of the Spirit, which he's been dealing with in the first half of the chapter, uh, to the future glory of God's children. And notice verse 23 with me for just a moment, where he says that the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of that glory. It's an Old Testament expression, most of, mostly. For a farmer, the, the first fruits of a crop is only the beginning. It's kind of a sampling of, of what is to come. And it looks forward to the promise of a fuller harvest that is yet to come in. And In Ephesians 1, Paul gives us kind of another window on this same wonderful reality where he says, In him you also, speaking to believers, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Notice that the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Well, what does sealed mean? Well, consider with me the function of an engagement ring. Uh, What Paul is saying here is that the Holy Spirit is given for a purpose similar to an engagement ring. It, It anticipates, it serves as a reminder of a coming marriage. 
a fuller, more all-encompassing, more permanent relationship yet to come. And, and as we will see, that's important to the twin themes of this passage, which are suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. First, the suffering and glory of the creation, verses 19 to 22. And secondly, the suffering and glory of the children of God in verses 23 to 25. And by the way, we're not, we're not going to make it through verse 25 today. Uh, I had intended to, but as I prepared the message, I just realized there's, there's just so much here. Yeah, and so we'll just pick up next week where we leave off today. I want to offer uh, four general introductory observations that I think are needful to us as we engage this passage. The first is that in the life of Christian discipleship, the suffering and the glory are inseparable. Um, you might say they're married to each other. They're joined at the hip. They belong together. It was true in the experience of Jesus Christ. It's also true in the experience of his people. It's been that way down through the last 2,000 plus years. Remember the the words of the writer of Hebrews, that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising his shame, scorning his shame, and then, and only then, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The suffering preceded the glory. Jesus said to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. In the world you'll have tribulation. It's going to come. Anticipate it. Don't think of it as some strange experience that's come upon you. Jesus also said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. The Apostle Peter, writing to encourage and challenge believers who were experiencing increasing persecution, wrote in 1 Peter 5, after you have suffered a little while, like for your lifetime, (laughs) the God of all grace who has called you to to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The, the suffering precedes the glory, but the glory will come. Come back with me then to verses 16 to 17 of today's scripture, Romans 8, where Paul writes, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. No, notice this word, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And that word translated provided in verse 17 is translated elsewhere by the word if. If. If we suffer with him. It's important that we understand and not become confused about what Paul is saying here because if misunderstood... This passage is one of those stoppers. It's one of those defeaters where we go, oh, have I suffered with him? (laughs) Have I endured with him? And the answer usually comes back, no. No. I I avoid suffering at all costs. (laughs) How many of you agree with that, right? I mean, nobody likes to suffer. Nobody just chooses that. So we could mistakenly read Paul as saying that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ 
if we suffer with him. And it's very possible to read this in the sense that we might not, probably will not, and on that basis, God could therefore in the future reject us. And that's, that's not what Paul is saying here. And I want you to understand it. The word in this context does not imply possibility, but it implies actuality. A better rendering would be because we suffer with him, or inasmuch as we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And Paul is saying here, I think that a mark, one of the marks of the authenticity of your membership in the family of God is that because of who you are as a child of God, you choose to suffer with Christ, to, to identify with him by suffering with him and for him. We choose to endure opposition and overt persecution from the world. Some people go looking for opposition. They go try to work up a little persecution. That's not, that's just stupid. Um, So that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying it's going to come and and we choose to endure opposition. We choose to endure overt persecution from the world. We wrestle with the temptations and the accusations that the devil throws our way Um, We experience the inner struggle between the desires of our selfish nature and the desires of the Spirit of God who lives in us. We suffer with him now so that we may be glorified with him later. And there's so much we can say about that, but we'll move on because uh, we'll see it unfold here. The second observation is this, that the sufferings and the glory are markers for the two ages or eons, if you will, that the Bible speaks so much about the present age and the age to come. And notice verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, literally the now time, the henceforth time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of this present time, the glory. Two periods in, of, in history. There's a now and there's a not yet about our faith this side of heaven. Um, as John Stott put it, we, we live now in a kind of provisional half-saved condition. And I, I like that expression. Does that mean you're not really saved? No. It just means that you haven't experienced the fullness of your salvation yet. So we live in this provisional, half-saved condition, and we understand quite well what is meant by the sufferings of this present time, but the glory is the unspeakable majesty and splendor of the eternal, immortal, unchangeable God. And a lot of times I think for most of us, when we think about heaven, we think about reunion with those who have gone before uh, our, our parents, maybe your friends who have gone before us, grandparents, aunts and uncles, people we loved that have gone on to heaven. And we look forward to that reunion with them. But the really great thing is going to be in the being in the presence, the overwhelming and all-encompassing presence of the holy, majestic, glorious God. Paul says that glory, that glory is going to be revealed. The English Standard Version, which is the translation we use here at LifePoint, usually says that the glory will be revealed to us. Other translations say it will be revealed in us. Both are acceptable. 
because the the word itself actually means kind of into, so you capture both of those words. But they also imply somewhat different experiences. So we can simply observe that the disclosure of God's glory, when when it's revealed to us, will be made to us because we will see it with our own eyes. And it will be made in us because we will be utterly and radically transformed by it. What do I mean? The Apostle John described that transformation when he wrote in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. Okay? We're our God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know this, that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. Do I understand that? No. <laughs> but, I, but I take this as the word of God, that, that when we see Jesus in that moment, there will be a an utter transformation, a radical transformation of our very nature. We will be like him. Why? Because we will see him. And there's something in that seeing him, being in his presence, will, be a, will, will, will affect a radical transformation in us. Paul put it another way to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, where he said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. I saw that, by the way, above a church nursery one time. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. (laughs) Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So it's going to be like that, faster than that. How fast is the twinkling of an eye? I don't know at the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So something's going to happen in that moment or we are suddenly transformed. Here's a third observation that comes also from verse 18. The sufferings and the glory can't be compared. They can't be compared. They can only be contrasted. Again, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know, as painful and as severe and even horrifying at times as the sufferings of this present time, this this now time may be. And Paul knew in his own experience the severity of suffering with Christ. He asserts that the glory to be revealed is infinitely greater and therefore incomparable by far. They can only be Contrasted, We can only really understand the, the stark difference. And again, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in, in chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. How many of you worked at kids' camp can say that? Our outer self is wasting away. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For, notice what he calls it, this light momentary affliction. 
light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As I was studying this passage, the words of an old song came to mind that, that, that went like this, the, or the beginning of the chorus that said, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. It'll be worth it all when we see Jesus. All the suffering of this life, no matter how severe, will be worth it all because the sufferings of this life are, in, are, are not worthy of being compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Finally, the, the fourth introductory observation. I'm, I'm like a golfer, you know, kind of waggling on the tee <laughs> before taking his first drive. But here's the fourth introductory observation, that the sufferings and the glory concern both God's creation and God's children, both God's creation and God's children. And we might call Paul's comments in, in the remainder of this section biblical cosmology because he's writing from a cosmic perspective here and, and we should sit up and take notice. Uh, parents, you should share this with your kids. The current sufferings and the future glory of the creation and the sufferings and future glorification of the people of God are integrally related to each other. The future of the creation is is inextricably intertwined with the future of redeemed humanity. Both, Paul says, are suffering and groaning together. And both will be liberated and set free together. And that's why in verse 19, Paul says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Eager longing. And Paul's painting a really graphic picture with that statement, isn't he? He's, he's personifying creation, and he has it craning its neck in order to see the event when it happens. And the, and the children of God are revealed to be who we really are on that day when we see Jesus. J.B. Phillips probably captured Paul's meaning best in his paraphrase of verse 19. He put it this way, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. On tiptoe. And why is the creation waiting in such eager longing for that moment? Why is the creation on its tiptoes? Because that will be the moment when the creation itself will also be liberated and revealed in all of its glory. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you give me just a few more minutes, I'll share with you what that means. Because verses 20 to 22 deal with the suffering and the glory of God's creation. Verses 20 to 22, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Again, Paul is instructing us here in biblical cosmology, the biblical view of the past, the present, the future of the created universe. And we need to ask first, however, what Paul means by the creation. Is he talking about angels? They're created beings along with demons, but but they don't fit the descriptions Paul gives here. Are the children of God included in his definition of the creation in this case? No, because he addresses us next in verses 23 to 25. So so what he is describing is material, non-human creation. All this described, for example, in the first six days of creation in Genesis 1 up to the creation of humankind. And in these three verses, he makes three important statements about the creation. And the first, he says, in verse 20, that the creation was subjected to frustration or futility. The actual word means futility, vanity, emptiness, purposelessness. And what it means in practical terms is that although it boggles the mind when we see the the beauty and majesty of the natural world, we realize that the creation does not now manifest the glory that it had when God created it, nor does it manifest the glory that it will when, when all of creation is renewed in the age to come. It is at present empty by comparison to what it was and what it one day will be again. One morning in Alaska, we had to get up at 3 o'clock. Can you believe that? 3 o'clock to be, drive two hours to Homer, Alaska, um, which is the home by, this is a little Alaska, Alaska trivia, the home of Tom Baudet, the Motel 6 guy who leaves the light on. It's where he lives. But as we arrived, it was two hours south of where we were, and so we had to catch a 545 boat, and there was lots of road construction going on, and there was, we were told there were going to be moose on the road. We never saw one. But, but we got down there right as the sun was rising over Kachemak Bay. And if you've ever been to Homer, you know the mountains I'm talking about is a crystal clear sky is not a cloud in the sky and the sun was rising and the mountains were just glorious and you know you hear people talk about a breathtaking moment it literally took my breath we came around this curve and there it was and i just went oh that's beautiful you know we, we see scenes like that but we need to be reminded that as beautiful as it is i mean it just blows our minds when we look at things we go oh, it's incredible but it's not what it was As beautiful as it is, it's not what it was, and it's not what it's going to be. And if that's true, how cool is that? How beautiful is it really going to be? Paul adds in verse 20 that the creation's subjection to frustration was not willingly, but because of him who subjected that. Well, subjected it. Who is is that? It's not Adam. 
It's not Satan. Only God, the creator and the owner, has that authority. So this has to be a reference to God's judgment on the natural order as a consequence of Adam's sin in the garden. Remember, back in Genesis 3, God said to Adam, because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Life is hard and then you die. (laughs) But the ground is cursed. It's not what it was. It's not what it's going to be. Next, Paul adds that God subjected the creation. This is the good news. Subjected the creation to frustration. Notice that two-word phrase, in hope. In hope. Even as God cursed the ground, he had future restoration and renewal in mind. And when you think about it, only God could entertain hope for a world that he himself had just cursed. Secondly, Paul says in verse 21, from a negative perspective, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to corruption. Be liberated from its bondage to corruption. The implication here is that the universe is running down. We all kind of get that, don't we? We we hear it all the time on the news. Nature is helplessly enslaved. The annual cycle of conception and birth and growth and death is really just a treadmill leading to ultimate destruction. Nature is a realm of pain and suffering. Everything in nature wears down and dies. Nature is currently a killer. One out of one animals, one out of one people die. The odds are good. Or bad, however you want to think of that. Positively, Paul says that none of this is the last word. That's the good news from a positive perspective. Instead, in God's time, creation itself will be rescued from the tyranny of change, of decay. It will obtain, he says, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You think about it. Nature... All of nature, all of creation itself will be brought out of bondage into freedom, out of decay into glory, out of corruption into incorruptibility. And this is not a new thought in the Bible. As you go back in the Old Testament, God was already speaking about it through the Old Testament prophets, anticipating this day. For example, Psalm 98, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it, let the Rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. The hills are alive with the sound of music. Or as another person put it, the hills are alive, and it's kind of frightening. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. See, in that time when God comes to judge, in the last day, The seas are going to roar. The rivers are going to clap their hands. The hills are going to sing for joy together. And I hope that that stuff doesn't just happen in Narnia because I think it would be cool to see a river clapping its hands. Wouldn't you? It might freak you out a little bit, but how cool would it be? I'm hoping that heaven's going to be like that, that we're going to see this happening. Isaiah 55, for you shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. 
Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Never to change again. Again in Isaiah 65, For behold, I create, God speaking through the prophet, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. If we were to read the broader context of each of those three passages or three scriptures I just read to you, you would know that the context is the end. It's at the judgment. It's in the last day that that recreation takes place. And third, Paul wants us to understand that until then, the creation groans. The creation groans. But it groans in hope. (laughs) Because it groans, Paul says, as if in the pains of childbirth. Jesus used the the same expression in Matthew 24.8. And uh, I've never been pregnant and I've never given birth and I never want to. I've seen it. It isn't pretty. That as painful as childbirth is, it's a hopeful thing, isn't it? It's a hopeful thing. It's a joyful thing. And Paul is saying here that the birth pangs are not meaningless because the creation will one day be reborn, renewed, transformed into a brand new, radically improved (laughs) version of itself. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus and said to them that God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. The Apostle Peter wrote that according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And at the close of John's record of the revelation God gave to him for the last days, he testified about the fulfillment of God's purpose, plan, and promise when he said, Then I saw, I saw, I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. No longer will there be anything accursed. We look forward to that day. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing passage, these amazing promises. And Lord, we look forward to that day on tiptoe with great longing for your coming because we groan, we groan in anticipation. We groan in our suffering, waiting for the glory. And thank you that because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, we know his word is true. And we know, we know that he's coming again. So Lord, help us to endure with you and for you until that day. 
We pray it in your name. Amen.